You're listening to the Verbatim Word Podcast with Justin Gary, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I saw a story on my sister's Facebook recently of my niece. At the time of the recording of this podcast, my niece is at an age where she is talking more and more every single day and learning and growing right before our eyes. In the video story that was posted, she was reading a book full of pictures of animals, and she's showing for the camera her growing knowledge in identifying the different animals and the sounds associated with those animals. Point to the duck, and she'd point to the duck. What sound does it make? And she'd do the sound. She did the duck, and she did the cow, and she did the pig, identifying each of them making the characteristic sound associated with that animal. It was so cute, and though I am biased because she's my niece, but she's clearly learning the important skills of making distinctions, categorizing things, and identifying characteristics. It's a sign of her maturing. Last time we were together on the podcast, Paul made clear in Galatians 5 that we can either be in the flesh or in the spirit. When we are in the flesh, we follow and respond to the base needs of the physical nature, which is in contrast to being led by God's spirit, which leads us to live and respond in a way that brings God glory, and that the flesh and the spirit are in conflict and contrast to one another. Well, on this podcast, just as my niece is learning to make distinctions, categorize, and identify characteristics with the storybook of the farm animals, Paul today helps the maturing Galatians see the differences in very practical ways of what a life looks like when being lived in the flesh compared to what it looks like when being led by the Spirit. That's where we'll pick up today in Galatians chapter 5. One final note, though, before we get started, I know some of our verbatim word listener, listeners enjoyed this podcast together with the family and with their children listening in as well. Just a word of caution today, though, you may want to preview the first few minutes of this episode alone before sharing it with your children, as we may touch on a few subjects that require a certain level of maturity to talk about comfortably. Now let's get to it in Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. In this practical section of the book, the author Paul really wants to list for them the difference between the flesh and the spirit, so he lays it all out for them. In fact, it kind of reads like a checklist, perhaps for them to maybe look in the mirror and see which of the two they are currently being led by, the flesh or the spirit, and also maybe to evaluate the false teachers, the Judaizers who were teaching them to go back to the law, to see if those teachers were really being led by God in their message and ministry, or if this was just a thing that man was go- was doing in his own efforts, and that was bringing confusion and division to the believers in Galatia. So Paul begins in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, with listing some of the traits of life lived according to the flesh. It reads this, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Before Paul begins the list, he tells them, now the works of the flesh are evident stating that when a life is being dominated by the flesh, that those works will be evident. The word evident there means that it will be plainly apparent, recognized, or known. There is no hiding the flesh. 
we can try to make ourselves look good by discipline or holding our tongue or putting on a false face before others. But eventually, our true, ugly, fleshly colors will show through. Remember last time we talked about the fall of man in the garden when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they died. And in Adam and Eve, we all have died. We were born into this life dead in our trespasses and sins, dead in the flesh. Well, dead flesh stinks. Have you ever smelled a dead animal, maybe on the side of the road or in your backyard somewhere in that high brush? I've heard horror stories of dead rodents in the walls of homes and the stink it causes. It lingers. You can't get out. Or the meat in the garbage that you didn't take out. The pungent, putrid smell that causes your gag reflex to engage as you walk in the door. Or an old refrigerator or freezer that had rotten meat in it. You can scrub and bleach it, but that smell lingers somehow. Dead flesh is evident. You can't hide it. In the same way, when we are living in the flesh, we can try and cover it or discipline it or suppress it, but eventually it will come out. The works of the flesh are evident, and we and others will be impacted. So just as my niece pointed out that the cow goes moo, what are the characteristics, the evident traits of a life in the flesh? Well, many see Paul's list in four categories, so let's break it down that way. First of all, the first section contains what some would call the sensual sins. He lists some of them in verse 19. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. They are all sins that have to do with man's sexual nature, which makes sense. Living in the flesh means responding to our bodily drives without the safety mechanism of the spirit engaged. And our sexual nature is one of the strongest drives. Now, mind you, Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago, and the Greco-Roman world was not exactly sexually pure. And we know that today's world is by no means sexually pristine. But Paul lists these sensual behaviors as some of the first and most evident signs that someone is not living according to the spirit. Taking a closer look, the list first contains adultery. The word is not included in all ancient manuscripts, so some modern translations like the NIV do not include it. But as we work through this list, we'll see it can definitely fall in here. The word there for adultery means violating the marriage covenant by sexual immorality. So it's important to begin here because God created sex. He makes the rules. He sets the standards for it. It is something to be enjoyed for a married couple, as well as for procreation of the human race. But it's also a symbol of the covenant of marriage, of two becoming one. In the Old Testament, when a covenant was made, two parties agreed on something, and the covenant was sealed, often with something called the cutting of the covenant. Many covenants involved the shedding of blood. And then there was an accompanying symbol as well to remind them of the covenant that had been made when the blood was shed. For example, with Noah and God, when he promised not to flood the earth again, after they got off the boat, Noah took some of those clean animals and he sacrificed them. So there was the shedding of blood. And then there was the symbol of the rainbow that each time they saw it would be a reminder of that covenant that had already been made in the cutting of that covenant. Also with Abraham and God, there was the cutting of the covenant in foreskin. When the foreskin was surgically removed, there was some blood, and that was also the longevity symbol that they were God's people, the symbol of the covenant that had been made some time ago. Even with the Mosaic covenant, there were the sacrifices where blood was shed, and then they had symbols, including the symbol of the Sabbath, that they would be set apart as God's people. 
Well, marriage is also a covenant between a man and a woman. It also involved bloodshedding and a symbol to perpetually show the covenant that had been made through the bloodshedding. And both of those are found in the sexual act between the husband and wife who have entered into that covenant. Now, if a couple gets married and has never had sex before, which is God's design, there may be blood when the hymen is penetrated. In fact, apparently in the Old Testament, they were to keep evidence of this. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 22. It's an interesting read if you want to read that chapter. After the wedding night, evidence was collected in the form of a cloth where some of the blood from the penetrated hymen had stained. And in the future, if the husband ever tried to claim that his wife had not been a virgin or had cheated on him before they got married, the family had proof from the cloth and could even bring it before the elders of the town to prove the girl's virginity. So even the marriage covenant had the shedding of blood, but it also had the symbol. The physical union of a husband and wife in the sexual act is a sign that declares we are one. Each time they engage in sex with one another, it is repeating the symbol that they are one. I heard a pastor share once with his young son who had a girlfriend and he and the girlfriend were growing closer. He said to him, you sleep with her, you've married her. You see, in the Old Testament, the act of sex was the sealing of the deal. The two became one flesh, which is why in God's design, it is reserved for husbands and wives. And in fact, a healthy marriage should involve regular intercourse between a husband and wife because it strengthens their oneness and reestablishes the unity of the covenant they made with one another. And so a married person who has sex with another is breaking that covenant and the symbol of being one with one person, their wife or their husband, and it's a lie because God still recognizes them to be one with their spouse and not with this new partner. In addition, anyone not married engaging in sex is hijacking a covenant, displaying the symbol that we are one when no commitment has been made to be made one. It is hypocritical and deceitful for anyone not married to engage in sex because they are not yet one, which the act itself symbolizes or to have multiple partners in one's lifetime because the declaration that we are one, which sex symbolizes, is mocked. What a foreign concept this is in a world that celebrates sexual expression and freedom, isn't it? But Paul says, that is the flesh. And that is what happens when we are not led by the Spirit of God. Now, Paul's list of the sensual expressions of the flesh also contains the word fornication. This word refers to sexual immorality in a broad sense. And any sex not between a husband and wife, which we just mentioned, falls into this category of fornication. The Greek word there is porneia. It started out meaning the use of a prostitute. But by Paul's day, it was used for a wide variety of sexual sin. Any sexual activity other than sex between a husband and wife is not what God intended or designed. Since God created sex and defined marriage, Fornication then includes adultery, which we just read about, but also sex before marriage, casual sexual encounters, multiple sexual partners, living with someone as partners before marriage, heterosexual sex, homosexual sex. In fact, any sexual acts or gratification that does not involve a person's God-recognized spouse could fall into this category. 
It's a work of the flesh, and it's not approved by God, according to the scriptures. Only sex within marriage is holy and protected by God. The writer of the book of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 13, verse 4, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed is undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. God is serious when it comes to sex. Now, when we are not in the spirit, our flesh will push back against this and be led by the sexual drive and not by the spirit in this area. Paul wrote about his concerns to the believers in Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 8, he wrote, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this manner, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Paul says that the Gentiles are led centrally in the passion of their lust because they do not know God, as it says in verse 5. Since they do not know him, they hijack sex for their own needs and ignore the rules that he has put in place because they do not know him. It's like a fire. A fire can be very romantic in the fireplace. It's there safe behind the the grate there. It's comforting. It's beautiful. But you put those logs in the middle of the floor and light it in the middle of the living room. It's dangerous and destructive. Same thing with sex. When it's according to God's design, it's safe, it's beautiful, it's romantic, but place it in any other context, it is dangerous and destructive. The Thessalonians were doing that in this area because they did not know God. Paul also told the Thessalonian believers that he who rejects this, God's authority and teaching on sex, does not reject man, but rejects God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. The flesh will reject God's authority in this area. But Paul adds on that they reject God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Right there, Paul tells them that God has given the believer the Holy Spirit. Because our sexual drive is strong and the flesh loves to lead in this area, but we have the Holy Spirit as believers. And when we seek and submit to the Spirit, the believer can bring glory in this area of their life. Now, Paul is not done yet with the sensual expressions of the flesh. He goes on and adds uncleanness and lewdness. Uncleanness. Paul uses another broad word here. It refers to the opposite of purity. If it isn't pure before God, then it is uncleanness. Many times when it comes to sex, people, especially young couples, are trying to figure out how close they can get to the line without their physical interaction truly qualifying as, quote, sex. So they get as close to the line and they try their best not to cross it and compromise or fail oftentimes. Instead, though, the spirit-led believer should ask the question, what is pure in in this physical area? What would God see as pure? God's desire is purity. For the single person, physical touch and interaction should communicate care and affection to the person that you're romantically involved with. But if physical touch and interaction begins to arouse one another or cause sexual excitement, then it's probably no longer pure. 
But this word also covers a lot of other things that are not pure as well. Pornography is not pure. Seeking arousal or satisfaction through the images of someone you're not married to. But even impure speech could fall in this category. Off-color jokes, that's what she said comments. Speaking with innuendos, this list can go on and on in the area of uncleanness. Purity is what the spirit seeks. The flesh delights and gratifies itself in uncleanness. When purity becomes the standard, we need the spirit to define it. So it takes walking with the spirit to understand what purity really is. In this category, Paul finally says, though, lewdness. This word is sometimes translated licentiousness. And if you look at that word in English, licentiousness kind of has the word license in there. It has the idea of ready to sin at any time or having a license to sin. This is sensual sin that is in your face. There's no shame about it. There's no trying to hide it. It's very open and it's very proud to sin sexually. It is thrown off restraint and has no shame or no embarrassment. Think of the way society promotes sexual immorality that contrasts with God's design. Some are proud of it and parade it in the streets, expressing their liberation openly and not caring who knows or who, who sees it or who cares about it. It's a work of the flesh and it grieves the Holy Spirit. But the flesh is not only characterized by sexual sin, which we tend to assume many times. The next two in Paul's list in the Galatians, some see as the flesh being manifested in religious sins. So if you were censoring the previous section with your kids, you can go ahead. I think the rest of the podcast will be family friendly. But in that verse, he goes on talking about religious sins when he writes idolatry and sorcery. When we struggle with idolatry, it is a struggle with the flesh. Any other god we worship is an idol by definition. In formal religions, this can be other faiths that we might turn to other than the faith in the God of the Bible. Many other faiths actually appeal to our flesh because, we, as we've discussed at length in previous podcasts, trying to be righteous by the law, any religious law, satisfies my flesh a bit because I did it and I can take the credit for my salvation or for my enlightenment or for whatever that religion is promoting or pushing me towards. But idolatry can also be placing any created thing above the true creator. And how often the flesh gets sidetracked and caught up in making something in this life a priority above God. Our material possessions, our pursuits of, of pleasure, our own image, our social interactions. We are in the flesh when those things start giving us more fulfillment than we receive from God. Paul mentions sorcery as well in this list. Some versions say witchcraft. It's seeking spiritual power or spiritual experiences apart from God. You know, many people in our world claim to be, quote, spiritual. It's a very open society. There's lots of ways to get to God, according to many. You have your way, I have my way. Well, any other way, Paul taxed his list as being in the flesh. And think about it. If a Christian begins walking in the flesh regularly, they can begin to compromise in their faith as well, or find a new form of Christianity or religion that is more accommodating to their personal style or convictions and to their flesh as well. Now, the word Paul used here for sorcery is pharmakia. We get our word pharmacy from it. What does that have to do with sorcery or witchcraft? 
In those days, many pagan religions and occultic practices involved the use of hallucinogens, substances or potions or herbs that opened them up to see and hear beyond the natural realm. The belief was that those aids could help them escape this reality and enter the spiritual realm that they were seeking to enter into. What a scary thought that mind-altering substances can open one up to demonic spirits. That is not what is being discussed today as we legalize drugs like marijuana and recreational drug use of illicit drugs or opioid abuse, and it's so commonplace. Paul said, that is the flesh. Our state of Oklahoma, super conservative, but somehow we voted to legalize medical marijuana recently. And many people see that as the first step to eventually legalizing recreational marijuana. Now, I think there may be medical uses for marijuana. If that's the case, though, there should be stronger regulations versus all these dispensaries we have. If you've been to Oklahoma, they are every five feet. It is so loose. You can get a diagnosis and prescription for almost everything. But here's what I want to point out. What about the Christian then? If you live in a place where some mind-altering drugs are actually legal, just because it's legal, should that be a viable medical treatment that I should seek? Now, in my opinion, if someone has ever partied in the past and drugs were a part of it, or smoked out to escape life or to get the buzz or just socially engaged in those things, they should probably not pursue medical marijuana, even though it might be legal, because it was part of their flesh life before. And it likely will be again. And even though you have a medical condition or a prescription or even a law to protect you and say that this is another way of alleviating your pain or your symptoms, if you used to engage in that in your flesh, you probably need to stay away from it now. And if my goal as a believer is to be in the spirit to bring glory to God, then I should probably steer clear of anything that was once a part of my flesh life. Moving on from those religious sins, Paul then lists some interpersonal behaviors that are indicators of the flesh. In Galatians 5 verse 20, Paul writes, Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders. These have to do with how we treat others. And the flesh is always putting yourself first at the expense of others. This is contrary to being in the Spirit. The Spirit puts others before myself as we follow Jesus' example. In this list, we see hatred. Hatred is the inner attitude that you have ill will for another person. What a contrast to the heart of the Spirit-filled believer, which has the fruit of love, which we'll see next time in our podcast. The flesh is not primarily a list of actions. The flesh begins deeper in our heart which is often seen in the church, isn't it? Sometimes we can rein in our actions and keep our words and vocabulary under wraps and be wholly Christian and spiritually outward, but inwardly, we are so in the flesh. We just hope no one notices. Remember, though, what Paul wrote, the works of the flesh are evident. Eventually, they will come to the surface, even if we are covering up the flesh for the time being. My wife and I visited Yellowstone, and we were amazed at the geysers that were there, especially Old Faithful. We had always heard of Old Faithful. She blows her steam every 70 minutes or so, and we waited, and just as predicted, she blew over. Now, she's famous. There are many other geysers and springs all over Yellowstone, and as you drive through, you see them emitting their spray, um, tracks of steam going up in the air, sulfur smells uh, plummeting into the air. You can just tell there's this escape going on from deep in the earth where all these things are contained underneath. 
Here's the thing with our flesh. When you start noticing it escape from you, no one else may pick up on it yet. You might be able to cover it up for a while, but at that point, begin the search inside to see what has shifted. And go to Jesus and ask him to work in that area and reveal where you need the Spirit. Because the flesh is not just about a list of actions. It begins in our heart, moving away from Jesus a little bit in our hearts. And Paul lists hatred, that attitude of the heart, as one indicator of the flesh. And even though you might hide it or butter up with words or put a smile on your face, eventually it'll become evident. Eventually it'll burst forth. Now, as far as others' words in the list there are concerned, it kind of reads like a reality TV show script. He mentions contentions in verse 19. Some people are more confrontational by nature, but when we see ourselves being combative and argumentative, and it moves beyond communication or problem solving and becomes a toxic time bomb in which we conflict with others and it seems to happen all too regularly, we need a flesh check. It's interesting in Jesus's life and ministry, there was a lot of conflict with others, in particular with the religious leaders of his day. And most of those contentions were initiated by the religious leaders, where they sent people to test him. They sought to draw him into contentions. Why do your disciples do that? Or Moses said this, but you do this. They were contentious, and it was a mark of the flesh. We live in a truly contentious age. People are more open and apt to speak their minds and do it in a way that provokes others. Social media has made this even more of an issue as people post and respond to posts in a way that stirs up conflict. There is enough conflict that arises in life. To seek to stir it up is an act of the flesh. Paul also lists in verse 20, selfish ambitions. It's that attitude that asks, what's in it for me? The flesh always looks out for number one. It thrives in self-preservation and self-promotion. It has a me-first attitude. It takes the spirit within me to put others first, as Jesus did. The list also includes dissensions and heresies. Dissensions means standing apart. It's really just a behavior and attitude that brings division and not unity. And on the tale of selfish ambition, which we just saw on the list, it is usually trying to get others onto my side and using manipulation, exaggeration, or pressure to do so. I'm not really having their best, best interest, but my best interest in mind. What a divided world we live in, and so much flesh in the mix to further divide us. I like that Jesus could take a bunch of misfits with not much in common, some fishermen, a tax collector viewed as a traitor, a zealot, and unify them in him. And how unified the kingdom of Christ will be as we all stand on his side. As we navigate today through these times, the right side to be on is always Jesus's side, first and foremost, though our flesh would delight in dissensions. As far as heresies go, which is listed there, it kind of goes along with dissensions. Heresies means to choose in the original. It kind of implies a hardening of dissensions, an unyielding attitude, one that draws a line in the sand and makes you choose which side you're going to be on. Again, the only side to be on in every situation is Jesus's side. I love the story in Joshua chapter 5, when Joshua and the children of Israel are just outside of Jericho. That city is about to come down, and Joshua is probably a bit nervous about this upcoming conflict. But we read in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, 
that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. Now that man there, it's capital M, it's someone supernatural. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said to him, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Essentially, Jesus was telling him, I am not on your side, but you better get on my side for the battle that's about to come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandal off your foot for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, this is potentially a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament before he came as a baby, because Joshua there, he bows down and worships him, and he's not stopped by this person, which means that it's probably God himself, Jesus in the flesh, coming uh, in a Christophany and allowing Joshua to worship. But Jesus was commanded to stop worrying about who was on the right side, but to start worshiping the Lord. Because a right focus on the Lord and his authority and his reign and his rule and his victory would put all of Joshua's battles into perspective. And that should be our posture as well in this divided world today. Don't worry about what side. Start worshiping God more and more. That'll put you on the right side of the equation. Paul finishes up the interpersonal sins in his list of the works of the flesh with two more. The first is envy. Envy doesn't just want what another person has. That's jealousy. But envy is bitter because they have it. It is focused on the person and wanting to bring them down so hopefully I can get what they have, which, if left unchecked by the Spirit, can take us to the next item on Paul's list, murders. I think we could all agree that murder is a work of the flesh, taking the life of another person. Now, this word is not in all versions of the text. But if you take the last few items and carry them out to the fullest extreme without holding the flesh in check, it could result in murder, taking that person out because those those things that are going on inside of you that you're trying to suppress are left unchecked. It is the highest valuing of my life over another's life. And all these interpersonal manifestations of the flesh, if remain unbridled, could eventually lead one in the extreme to take the life of another, to get rid of them. But they are not the problem. Our flesh is the problem. That is what needs to be dealt with. And if we don't deal with our flesh eventually, who knows how far it could take us. As we near the end of Paul's list, we see what some would call the social sins. These works of the flesh are often manifested in the company of others and are listed as drunkenness, revelries, and the like. The Bible tells us not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Spirit. And while the Bible does not prohibit drinking alcohol, drunkenness is never celebrated. People drink too much to escape, to let loose, to let down their inhibitions, to talk more freely. But being under the influence of the Spirit can do all those same things without any alcohol. We can escape this temporal world when we get the Spirit's eternal perspective on things. We can let loose as we experience the joy of the Holy Spirit, which is a fruit of the Spirit. We can find boldness in the Spirit rather than alcohol, which we saw many times in the book of Acts when the disciples were freshly filled, they gained a new boldness. We can speak freely when we are in the Spirit, 
which the listeners on the day of Pentecost confused with being drunk when they saw the apostles filled with the Spirit, using the Holy Spirit's gifts, and heard Peter speaking freely and boldly once filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, being drunk is a substitute and shortcut for walking in the Holy Spirit. And the flesh will always seek shortcuts. It will seek the results of God without involving God in the equation. And it never works. Paul concludes this list by saying drunkenness, revelries, or partying hard, partying hard and openly, and the like. And they're all works of the flesh. By writing and the like, Paul makes this an open-ended list. It is not comprehensive. My flesh and your flesh may look different. One person may have their flesh manifest regularly in some ways, while another may wrestle with other fleshly tendencies. But it is all flesh, and it is rotten, and it stinks. Now, as Paul finishes this list, he adds commentary when he says, Of which, the items on this list, I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. A few things. First, I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past. Paul is telling them this, but actually reminding them of these things. He had already told them these things. He has warned them against living in the flesh before. He tells them beforehand to spare them of reaping what they sow as living in the flesh always has repercussions. And he had told them in times past as well. You know, defeating our flesh is not a one-time event. We may have heard it before, but the flesh will always come back in weak moments. But also he may mention that he warned them already in order to fend off the critiques of the Judaizers, who thought that teaching grace would lead to sinful fleshly practices since Jesus already forgave us, right? Wink, wink. No such thing, Paul says. I already told you this. Second, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. When Paul mentions practice, it can mean exercise, practice, or carry on. It has the hint of habitual, continual. When we practice something, we do it over and over again until we are really good at it. Maybe you practiced for a sport or a performance you were in or an event. You did something repetitively, so it became natural or second nature. This is good to hear. We will all be in the flesh from time to time. As a believer, the goal is for the spirit to win more often and that we respond in situations in the spirit more and more and that we find ourselves less dominated by the flesh. But those who practice such things, are living unbridled by the flesh. The flesh is allowed to lead however and whenever it wants, and the spirit has no power to rein them in. Those who practice such things as we saw today will not inherit the kingdom of God. The flesh and the spirit are in opposition. If I am born again, I have the spirit, and he will not let me rest when I react or respond or act in the flesh. But if my life is full of habitual, unchanging, unrepentant indulgence of the flesh, then one must question whether I am truly born again and whether I have the Spirit at all. And if I do not have the Spirit, I am not His, and I am not sealed for His kingdom. And that, my friend, is a precarious and scary place to be. Paul wrote to his friends in the Corinthian church, which was a very carnal church, a very fleshly church. Many of them had lived in habitual sin. They were practicing sin. And yet he writes to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
and such were some of you. He said you were going to be kept out of the kingdom of God because of your habitual life apart from the Spirit of God. But such were some of you. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified. Even habitual practice, practicing people of the flesh can become people living according to the Spirit and prepared for the kingdom of God. We look today at Paul's list of the works of the flesh, which he said are evident when we are not being led by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we can listen to these verses and read them off as a checklist of sorts. And as we go through, we can check off to see how many we are guilty of and breathe a sigh that there are some that we don't struggle with so much. We think adultery, oh, I'm good there. Fornication, well, not in a while. Uncleanness, I think I'm in the clear there. Lewdness, no, I'm pretty conservative. Idolatry, nope, well, not really. Sorcery, nope. Hatred, okay, maybe half a point there. Contentions, okay, guilty. Jealousies, another check mark. Outbursts of wrath, uh, two check marks. Selfish ambitions, check. You get the idea. But we can comfort ourselves in saying, at least I only got a few, or at least some of the really bad ones are not on my list tallying it up like you were grading your math homework back in middle school. Just like the law, Paul's list reveals we are all guilty and that we need a savior. Reading his list, it's a basic list of human nature, isn't it? I mean, a lot of those things sound like your kindergarten class or even the nursery at church. They're so prevalent in human nature because we all wrestle with the flesh from the start. Can you imagine? Jesus knew none of those things on that list. He lived a life apart from the flesh and apart from sin. Now, in his human nature, I am sure he wrestled with all of those things. But in the moment of opportunity, he always stopped and yielded to the Spirit before the flesh took over. And we can too, if we are his. We'll look at that more next week as we spend time on the flip side of this list, as we see the fruit of the Spirit that comes when we walk together with the Holy Spirit, moment by moment in a relationship with him. The list we read today, though, finds us all guilty. But Jesus knew no sin. And he died for my sin and he died for your sin. I don't know how long it has been since you checked off a box from Paul's flesh list, or how long it will be until you succumb to your flesh again. But when we do, we turn to Jesus. We repent, we ask for forgiveness, and he gives us his righteousness. And we move on and seek to live in the Spirit the next time that opportunity comes. But if you are not a follower of Jesus, I have some bad news. You have no hope of getting away from the list we read today. That is your biography, a picture of your life, because you do not have his spirit. But he longs to forgive you, to set you free, and give you power to live in a way that pleases him and is best for you in the long run. It's not a list today to get to work on, to do better, to try harder. That's the law. It's a mirror to remind us of how much we need Jesus. Spend some time with him right now on your own as this podcast finishes. If you don't yet know him, receive him as your Savior and Lord. Have that conversation with him. Repent and ask for forgiveness. And if you are already his, praise him for his perfection. Thank him for his grace. Repent and seek his forgiveness and cry out for his spirit. God bless you as you do that now.